listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. This is Greg LeBlanc, and this is Unsiloed Podcast. And I'm with David Teese, who is professor at UC Berkeley, also the founder of Berkeley Research Group, and the author of countless academic papers and a couple books. I think this book, Dynamic Capabilities, which came out uh, a while back, encapsulates a lot of your ideas. This one also I found really useful. It's uh, Managing Intellectual Capital. And then you added this book, Managing Industrial Knowledge. So lots of great books for everybody to add to their bookshelves. So glad you could make it in, David. I'm pleased to be here, Greg. So the premise of this program on Siloed is that interdisciplinary research and interdisciplinary thinking and and a curious mind that roves around in all these different silos can really create insight. And when I think of your work, I think of your work as really being extremely interdisciplinary. And I think you say that, well, strategy is by its very nature interdisciplinary. And so you have to understand a little bit of business history. You have to understand human psychology. You have to understand decision-making. You have to understand organizational design, microeconomics. And even within economics, there's all these sub-disciplines that you have to know something about. And I think your work has drawn from a whole bunch of different separate strands in the world of strategy and outside of strategy. Is that a fair description of your approach? Yes. I've actually come to see what I've been doing is a workable systems theory of business organizations, actually. And Systems theory recognizes that everything is connected and that if you just have a siloed view of things, be it finance, be it strategic management itself, for that matter, or be it marketing, you're not going to get the totality of the picture you need if you really want to advise managers or if you want to um, shape public policy. Well, another part of strategic, at least academic research and strategy is that it's in part positive and in part normative. It's part descriptive and also it's part advisory. If you go back to the business schools 50 years ago, everyone looked at them and thought of them as trade schools. And when you look at someone like Peter Drucker, however insightful he he may have been, I think the academics were a little dismissive of him and other practitioner theorists. How has strategy become a respectable academic discipline? And, And why is it so important that you have some kind of academic foundation for the insights that business people need? That's a very good question. A guy like Peter Drucker is incredibly insightful, but it's hard to build on what he's done because he doesn't lay out the foundations for it. So the reason for doing research and tying this back to the social sciences is so that you can actually test the underlying ideas and that you can build on it. So I do believe it's very important to build a multidisciplinary understanding of complex business phenomena because then you have a chance of improving it. And indeed, that is a good way to encapsulate what I've been trying to do. I'm aware of the practical questions, but at the same time, an experiential answer is not enough. You know, one needs to be aware, not just of theory, but of course of data and of evidence of empirical studies and try and weave that together into a coherent whole so that there is understanding that's got some depth to it. I remember when I first uh, started taking business school classes and, you know, we were using the case method and I started reading all these HBR articles and, and there was a lot of anecdotes in a lot of these articles. And I was frustrated. I was coming from more of a deductive approach. And, and then you stumble on these kind of anecdotes stitched together. To what extent is developing insight in something like strategy, uh, a combination of deductive and inductive thinking? 
Very much so. I think it's a combination of both. And there's also another type of thinking out there called abductive thinking, which is formulating hypotheses and testing them and adapting them without necessarily doing formal statistical analysis. But abductive thinking follows the scientific method in a loose kind of way where you formulate tentative views and you test them. Not by running regressions necessarily, but by talking to customers, by talking to suppliers, and by talking to the universe of folks that may know something about it. So, in a way, it's a loose application of the scientific method. And I think you need to use all three in order to you know, understand things. In today's world, of course, there's a lot of analysis of big data. Without a theory behind it, I'm not sure that even models that predict well in one circumstance will predict well in all circumstances. Yeah, and I think that sort of abductive approach is what successful firms are able to do, run experiments to validate hypotheses. That seems to be something that business people are taking to now much more consciously than they were in the past. Steve Blank and Eric Reese, where they explicitly talk about entrepreneurs as being hypothesis-driven and running experiments with their customers. Yeah, and that really, of course, relates to learning theory. If in doubt, you try something and you learn from it. So that all ties together with behavioral economics, for that matter, and behavioral decision theory. But I do think that in a world of deep uncertainty, you're never going to know the answer through market research. You're never going to know the answer with certainty at any point in time. So you've got to start, and that's the whole lean startup idea, if in doubt, do. Why? Because you'll learn and then you can adjust and pivot, which is, of course, if you've got low cost pivots, that works. If you've got high cost pivots, if you're designing a dreamliner or building a dreamliner, it doesn't work quite so well. But the general idea is the world is characterized increasingly by deep uncertainty and uncertainty is very different from risk. You know, with risk, you can put a probability on it, but with uncertainty, you don't even know what the future states are that may exist. So where you get caught flat-footed is with the unknown unknowns. And in that world, how do you you begin it and you start and you learn? Now, in a way, Keynes saw the same phenomena in a very different circumstance when he's looking at investors. And he couldn't understand why, when there's deep uncertainty, that investors would still invest because economics would say you got to wait till you get the right answer. Otherwise, you're taking on too much risk. And he coined the term animal spirits to describe investment behavior, which was another way of saying he couldn't explain it. But animal spirits is a placeholder for a theory of, in this case, investor behavior. And of course, in that placeholder, I have invented a concept I call dynamic capabilities, which tries to give some structure to why it is and how it is that decision makers can decide and get on with it when there's deep uncertainty. And you refer to this as a framework as opposed to a model, right? People in the scientific community and economists in particular, they like models, right? They're big into models. And even Keynes, I think, famously said that economics is the science of model development and the art of model selection. But in strategy, we we always talk in terms of, of frameworks, Why call it a framework instead of a model? Well, I could call it a model, and a lot of people do call frameworks models. But I think model is too pretentious, and it suggests more of a predictive framework. When you have an, an eclectic sort of systems theory view of things, you have understandings, but you don't necessarily have a model. Did Darwin have a model of evolution? I I guess in some sense, uh, yes. But in another sense, it was more a framework for understanding things. So I tend to stick with frameworks because, A, I think it's 
accurate and B, model is too pretentious. And in any case, formal models, in my view, frequently squeeze out most of what's interesting. And so for me, it's not necessarily better to have a model. Yes, if you're dealing with something simple and you can create a simple model of it and it predicts that's very elegant. But most things in business are very hard to model, except in, you know, very narrow aspects of business behavior or investment behavior. Well, I suppose we shouldn't get too deep into this uh, conversation with, without giving you an opportunity to define dynamic capabilities. How, how would you describe this to someone who's not immersed in the discipline of strategy. Interestingly enough, I've found it useful to begin describing dynamic capabilities by telling you what it's not. Well, first of all, it's a capability, but there are ordinary capabilities, which we all know. We can walk, we can talk, and organizations can do certain things, and they're very important capabilities. But if they're of the kind that result in you getting the everyday work done, it's ordinary capabilities, when it's about change, And when it's about actually figuring out what the next big thing is and effectuating change, that's capability that I call dynamic. We can go to business schools and engineering schools and we can learn how to optimize things and we can learn how to build capabilities and we can get technical efficiency. Those capabilities are important. But when you have change and uncertainty, if you're the most efficient, it doesn't make you the best at all. You can die by being the most efficient. So you have to figure out where to place your bets for the future. And that is about dynamic capability, sensing what's going on in the environment, what the opportunities are, what the threats are, not just observing that, but making sense of it, formulating a view of what this means for your investment behavior, and then quickly deciding and investing behind those opportunities or to protect against those threats. And then if you're successful, you're going to have to keep changing. And that's where transformation comes in. So dynamic capabilities is this ability to manage the environment and the organization and also to build alliances. So it's both internal and external. It's not about just the organization. It's essentially building evolutionary fitness. It's shaping the organization so that it's fit for purpose. And those purposes are always changing. So the skill that you need, I think what dynamic capabilities does is remind you that this skill you need for doing everyday things is not the skill that'll help you move to the next thing. Innovation's a key part of dynamic capabilities, but so is transformation. You know, think about Kodak. It invented many of the elements of digital film, but it stayed working with the old technology and, and let that industry get away from it. So it's it's not just about invention. It's about changing the organization to embrace new technology and to embrace the future and to shape the future. So... I think I heard you say once that economics, neoclassical economics, didn't really have a good theory of innovation. If you'd mentioned evolution, I mean, evolution doesn't really have a good theory of purposeful action or intentionality. Maybe we could start with economics, right? Strategy is built on economics, but economics is all about equilibrium. And I think your ideas are rooted in Schumpeter. And Schumpeter was always viewed as being outside of the mainstream, outside of the pale. He gave rise to the Austrian school and Austrians were always seen as kooky folks by mainstream economists. How were you inspired by, by Schumpeter? Where did that come from? Because normally it's some, not something you're exposed to. And we were talking earlier about how economics training, it's become like biology training. And biologists never read Darwin and economists never read anybody who, who didn't publish in the AER this month. Well, here's the fundamental problem. Economists want to be, quote, 
more scientific. And so they want models and they need the equilibrium idea in order to get a solution from a model. But of course, as Schumpeter reminded us, things are never in equilibrium, or if they are, it's very short periods of time. So the world's about disequilibrium. And so here you've got this penchant for building formal models that are based on equilibrium concepts. You can have disequilibrium models, but they're incredibly complicated, and no one's really developed that art with any great detail or with any great fervor, for that matter. So it's this penchant in economics to be like, physics that has led economists to actually adopt a set of assumptions which are orthogonal to the world that we know. And so that leaves me trying to create frameworks. It's too ambitious to build theories. And the Austrian economists, they were very active almost a century ago, and their model was one of disequilibrium. It was one that recognized the importance of discovery. And it's really a very innovation-friendly framework. The problem is the Austrians didn't have a theory of the firm either. And what I'm trying to do with dynamic capabilities, at one level, it's trying to tell managers, and this is what you got to do in order to succeed in today's global economy. But on the other hand, I'm trying to create a framework and a structure that will lead to a reasonably robust theory of the firm so that we can actually take that framework and use it to look at policy problems as well as management problems. Now, most people that read my work may not necessarily see that, but economists, if they do delve into this, and most of them don't, I'm quite explicit that I'm trying to develop a Schumpeterian theory, and uh, I'm working on that, as are a few other economists. I think of Ronald Coase as the Andy Warhol of neoclassical economics, you know, where he pushed it to the point where it had nowhere else to go to some degree, and made us really see that if you follow it through to its logical conclusions, it really leaves so much out. Could you explain a little bit how Ronald Coase may have impacted your thinking? Coase did a, in a very important insight, which is that in theory, what goes on inside a firm could go on in a market, particularly if markets are as efficient as economists tell you they are. It leaves it open. Why are there firms at all? Why don't we just have individuals contracting with each other? Why do we need large organizations? Now, actually, Williamson did take Coase to its logical conclusions by actually refining his theory of contracting to say that, no, really what's critical is transaction specificity or asset specificity. So Williamson took Coase that extra mile. But at the end of the day, both of them left the innovation story out. So it's useful insights at the margin, but quite frankly, not enough to really give us any kind of workable, meaningful theory of the firm. It can inform questions around firm boundaries rather nicely, but in terms of why firms exist in the first place and where do their capabilities come from and where does knowledge reside, they don't answer those questions. Nor does Schumpeter, for that matter, but a number of us, Sidney Winder, Richard Nelson, myself, Connie Helfat, Jay Barney, to some extent, have built some of the infrastructure now that I think there's a Schumpeterian-inspired theory of the firm out there that you can find in the dynamic capabilities literature and various other sort of formulations of the business enterprise. Well, I think Michael Porter also doesn't really have a theory of the firm. No, in, in a way, he's honest. His course he taught and may still teach at Harvard is called industry analysis. The firms are not in it. It's 
supposedly about competitive strategy without firms. So there's a tremendous lacuna there. And he built this framework. He actually took the framework that existed in industrial organization that was designed to help explain the monopoly problem and said, if it explains a monopoly problem from a public policy point of view, uh, it should be put for purpose for managers to help them figure out how to create monopolies. First of all, it wasn't a very good explanation of monopoly in the first place. And because there was no theory of the firm in it, it didn't really provide much guidance with respect to firm level decision making. I think that framework run its course. It's still popular and it's still used because people love to have a recipe book of things to look at. And there's some utility there, but because it's static and because it doesn't recognize compliments and various other things, I think it's, it's deficient and not fit for purpose for the world of deep uncertainty and rapid technological change. There's probably a few corners of regulated economies where the framework may still be relevant, but I don't think it's been relevant for a long time. It wasn't relevant when it was produced. There's a lot of definitions of the firm, right? So we have uh, kind of hierarchy versus market description. We have the island of command and control in the, in the sea of market transactions. We have the bucket of assets view, Henry Hansman's description of the firm. But you describe, I have, I wrote down your definition, although I think you have a couple, but it's a portfolio of difficult to trade assets and competencies. Super brief description of how you think of the firm still to this day. Yeah. And in some sense, it's implicitly Kosian and Williamsonian because it recognizes that there's certain economic activities that you can't use contracting mm-hmm. to satisfy. That if I've got intellectual capital, for instance, it's not a very tradable asset. And so if you want to take the traditional lens of the economist, the, the market failure lens, failure in quotes, of course, you would say, well, there's a lot of things needed to get production done and for innovation for which there aren't markets. And because of very scarce and because they're unique, there's no tradable market. And so you shove them under a manager. So that's certainly one element of the firm. But then the question is, okay, if you have this bundle of intangible assets that are difficult to trade, how do you manage them? And that's sort of where dynamic capabilities kicks in. So yes, I've latched on to sort of insights from Coase and insights from Williamson and some insights from the property rights theory, but its own approach that tries to integrate these various theories to some degree. Each one of those theories has a tiny amount of insight that's relevant and sometimes a significant amount of insight, but not enough to really fortify what it was to assist managerial decision-making or policy in a major way. It's only by putting them together that you've got some chance of really coming to grips with reality as we know it. But a simple competency view or capability view would be you stumble across some asset that no one else has, right? You stumble across the oil underground and build a fence around it and charge everybody to come and get it, or maybe you have the best and richest soil. So these would give rise to what are called what Ricardian rents. And I think you argue that's almost trivially uninteresting because those things are inevitably going to disappear as the landscape changes. That is right. The resource-based theory of the firm has this insight that economic value comes from difficult to trade and difficult to replicate intangible assets. Uh, That's true. But then the question arises, where do they come from? The old joke about the oil industry, it's the value, where, where do you find oil? It's not in the ground. 
It's in the mind because it's really exploration technology. It's figuring out the discovery process for finding new oil. And that sort of indicates the difference between the resource-based view and a Champeterian view. Discovery is a key part of a dynamic capabilities approach. And that's where real value comes from. Because if you can discover things that are unique and that are valuable and you can protect them in some way, that's how you get a rent stream going. But as one discovery gets exhausted, you have to keep doing this. So a theory of the firm, a dynamic theory of the firm, has to be one that allows continuous discovery, continuous invention, continuous innovation, and also change. So coming back to Peter Drucker, the difference, put in a very pithy way, is from borrowing in part from Drucker, dynamic capabilities is about doing the right things, and ordinary capabilities is about doing things right. Doing things right is, okay, I know what the thing is. I'm just going to do it right, which is efficiently. But the real question is, where do I get the new product from? Where do I get the new service from? And that's what motivates a Schumpeterian approach. It's figuring out what the next big thing is. You're also a business historian, economic historian. You think about things like where growth comes from. And I think now most people would acknowledge that growth comes from knowledge and not from the big capital push, which was prevailing view 30, 40 years ago, and these spillovers. But to the extent that there are these spillovers, isn't that, doesn't that create tension with the, the idea that firms want to capture the value that they're creating through this knowledge? Yeah. So firms survive on the, the scraps, if you will, of capture. If you're really an innovative firm, there's enormous spillovers that are being produced. And the capturing value approach, which I've developed, is about how do you capture a bigger share of the spillovers? Because that way you get the rewards higher and you can continue to invest more in research and development and in discovery. And this is another area where I think economics is not paid sufficient attention. This is sort of assumption that if you invent something, everything's patentable and protectable when it's not. And that motivated a paper I did way back in 86 called Profiting from Innovation, which was unlocking a very deep question. I mean, economists always understand the appropriability problem, but they saw it in very narrow terms around intellectual property rights. And what I was able to develop is, no, 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 it's not just property rights. It's also, in particular, complementary assets. It's timing, and it's a, it's a whole raft of non-IP issues that can assist in the value capture proposition. But a theory of the firm must have a theory of value capture, at least a theory of innovating firms must have a theory of value capture because if it spills all over externally and you can't develop a business model to bring it to market, then you have no firm. You do a lot of work in litigation antitrust as part of your non-academic career. And there's a movement out there now, the Neo Brandeis School, which is really pointing out the new tech monopolies and calling this a threat and seeing them as the new trusts. How does your view of innovation address these concerns that people seem to have right now? You raise a good point. I, I think mainstream industrial organizations have done a very poor job of illuminating what's going on with tech competition. And the, the so-called neo-Brandeisians are sort of going back to the model of the railroads, which is even more archaic, but it's a reflection of the satisfaction that society has, or the dissatisfaction that society has with the current state of understanding. Instead of marching forward to address innovation, they're marching backwards to address the industrial age, which is long past. Because economics lacks a Schumpeterian theory of the firm, 
it's really struggling to address the big tech issues. I made the point for 30 odd years is that we need a theory of dynamic competition and mainstream industrial organization, mainstream competition policy sees competition as driving innovation, and I will accept that. But they don't look at the other side of the equation, which is innovation drives competition. That's what Schumpeter was telling us back then. And clearly, that's what's happening today. It's all over us, all around us. And if you won't understand big tech, if you don't see innovation as a driver of competition, the term that I find useful to describe big tech is this broad spectrum competition that no one is confined to their swim lanes. Google competes with Apple, which competes with Amazon, which competes with Netflix. All of these companies are competing, not in relevant markets, but across what used to be called relevant markets. So it's a much more dynamic circumstance. And we don't have the tools, at least economists don't have the tools to look at this. Now, there's now excitement around platform economics and platforms are an important part of it. But once again, they've got a static views of platforms too. So the deficiencies with economic theory and with the theory of the firm is really hurting society. And what we need to do is take a thousand economists off into boot camp to learn in a Schumpeterian way the role of innovation. Uh, and maybe we need to take people who are not steeped in the past, take some young folks that are not necessarily bought in, haven't necessarily bought in to the mainstream. And, and I think we could develop a much better understanding of dynamic competition in short order and get way better policy responses. I'm worried that if Elizabeth Warren thinks that, that uh, big tech is like the railroads of the past, it's nothing like the railroads of the past. Yes, these are big companies. Yes, they have a lot of financial resources. But big data is different from railroads. And big data is something, if you've got consumer data or business data, you can use that to compete in very broad areas. So, we have to understand that the nature of competition has fundamentally changed. And until we do that, we're not going to get it right. So it's not that we'll make just type one errors. We could make type two errors as well. Sure. But how exactly? It seems big data has economies of scale. It has economies of scope. It has all the things that would tend towards uh, larger and larger firms. The contours are difficult to predict. And it seems like the contours of the big tech firms in the U.S. are different from the contours in China. But nonetheless, the concerns that I think the antitrust folks had back in the day were not just about natural monopolies, but concerns that these companies would use their, uh, their power and influence to alter the political balance. I'm looking only at competition policy questions, and I do understand there's a whole bunch of issues around speech, which are incredibly important. But, but coming back to the, the big data thing, it's not the big data per se, it's the ability to be able to analyze it. And if you don't have dynamic capabilities, if you don't have the best computer scientists, and if you don't constantly adapt to competitive changes, you're out of the game. According to the economists, the economist notion in the monopolists is that they have an easy life. And remember the book Andy Grove, who was the CEO, one of the founders of Intel, wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And people said, look, Intel is a monopolist. And yet the CEO is writing a book which says only the paranoid survive, where if you're a monopolist, supposedly you have an easy life. You don't have to be paranoid. You can just sit back and enjoy your 
natural protection that a monopolist has. So I, I think likewise that the big tech companies, if they don't stay on the ball, they're out of the game too. Maybe they get a seat at the table at the next round of innovation, but they don't get a guaranteed position in the marketplace. So I'm not saying that there aren't some competition policy questions here. Yeah, I believe there are. I'm saying I don't believe we've got the right frameworks to look and also and to not just to look at it, understand it, but to figure out where policy can come in. Can policy actually move fast enough to make a difference here? And can policy embrace the fact that compliments or complementers can overnight become competitors? These are orthogonal notions in, in economics. You have competitors and you have complementers, and complementers are in a different industry. They're not part of the competitive framework. Today, you've got to put complementers into the competitive framework. Instead of thinking of relevant markets, you have to think about ecosystems, not just platforms, but broader ecosystems. And look, the good news is people are starting to play with these ideas, but we're awfully late to the party. It's a little tragic when you think about it. There's lots of economists that have paid well and have had plenty of time to think about these issues. A phenomenon has been coming along for a long time, but stuck with yesterday's intellectual apparatus and they've not been too eager to uh, abandon it and to innovate themselves. Not just about studying innovation, you've actually got to do it yourself, and which means just like companies get disrupted, so do academic disciplines get mm -hmm. disrupted. And the problem is there's not enough competition for ideas. And because of that, the state of the art is way behind where it should be and where it could have been. So I want to keep to the topic of big data. I teach a course on data strategy, and I've been thinking a lot about data. Your book, Managing Intellectual Capital, this is now, I think, 20 years old. You know, we're talking about oil wells and so forth. I think when it came to resources, hundred years ago, it was really all about physical assets. And then at some point it moved toward intellectual property. And, and now we're talking uh, about data and companies like Facebook and Google are giving away a lot of their intellectual property. They're open sourcing a lot of their intellectual property. Is intellectual property becoming like old physical assets in the sense that they're becoming increasingly tradable? As they become tradable, they become less important as key resources within the firm? First of all, let me make a distinction here. The old world was tangible or physical assets. The new world is where intangible assets have a priority. Now, not all intangible assets are protected by intellectual property. You know, intellectual property maybe covers, you know, like five, 10% of, mm -hmm. of, of ideas and of tangible assets can be brands that are protected and tangible assets can be trade secrets and they're protected. Some intangible assets can be protected by the patent system. But, you know, as a general rule, most is not. So think of intellectual properties like a few islands in the ocean where you can crawl up through on top of a shoulder. It's like, they're like rocks that you can hold on to and you can lay claim to them. Now, I think data is protected not so much by intellectual property, but just by ownership. It is property. The question is whose? Is it the consumer's data? Or if I collect data on you, is that your data or mine? So there's a whole bunch of property rights issues to be worked out. But I think that open sourcing uh, is always a complement for proprietary work. I know there's guys like Elon Musk that will say, we'll put all of our patents into the public domain. But we didn't say put all his trade secrets into the public domain. Well, it's certainly not his data. 
and certainly not his data, exactly. And look, the future is built on the intellectual property system. As we move away from the industrial era, competition in the future increasingly relies on having good intellectual property protection. Trade secrets will always be there, we hope, but patents are important. And anyway, I think the the long and the short of this is proprietary and non-proprietary assets all have to be used in judicious ways. And part of dynamic capabilities is actually figuring out what are the key things you got to hold on to and protect? And what are the things that you can open source? But figuring out that mix varies by industry and circumstance. But developing more complex contracting technology around different sorts of assets will allow firms to begin trading those things, which normally they wouldn't before previously yes. trade. Remember, back to Adam Smith, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. And if you have strong intellectual property protection, it actually furthers the market for know-how that people can transact in it. Otherwise, they got to hold on to it and use it exclusively for fear that if you let it out, you'll lose it forever. So intellectual property is important for the efficient functioning of, the, of markets, particularly as the component of intangible assets uh, in, increases. What makes these ecosystems different from like the Koretsus? From a distance, they might look very similar in that you have complementarities across mm-hmm. these different firms, but it seems that in these ecosystems, the, the boundaries are clear, the interfaces are standardized in many cases, and the contracts are understandable and enforceable. Is it fair to say that the ecosystems that we're seeing emerge in these, not just the tech giants, but in all the industries in the U.S. and the world today are very different from those kind of industrial conglomerates that you would have seen in in other countries in prior time periods? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Apple ecosystem is different from Android, and there's no zero one. It's not open or closed. It's how open and how closed are they? But yes, they're very different from the ecosystems of the past in as much as the Kretsu structure was a bunch of very large firms producing tangible assets. The ecosystems today that we're talking about, a bunch of very large firms, there's maybe one large firm in the middle, and there's a bunch of complementors, and there can be crowds as well. There can be thousands of complementors, particularly app developers are complementors, for instance. So they are analogous in the only in a very loose sense. I think ecosystems are uh, what we need to study in a lot more detail. And in fact, I think the ecosystem concept is more relevant today than industry. I may have used industry during this interview, but really I don't think the word industry is very useful. I don't know what the boundaries of an industry are. Industries are created by statistical bodies that need to collect SIC SIC codes. And Michael's course at Harvard is called Industry Analysis. If I was an inquiring student, my first question in a class like that was, Professor Porter, please define an industry for me, please. Because out here in the tech world in California, everybody's in everybody else's swim lanes. Apple doesn't sit and stay in its swim lane, and nor does Google, and nor does Amazon. These companies are crisscrossing and uh, moving into completely outside the technology sector uh, as well. So... Dynamic capabilities requires continual change, flexibility, discovery, and there are analogies in biology, right? If we think of experimentation as a form of mutation, and we think of profitability as like a kind of fitness, then firms should be experimenting all the time. They should be engaging in encouraging mutations within 
their organizations. But that analogy only gets you so far. Yeah. If you're blindly experimenting and you spend all your time in exploration mode instead of having at least some portion of your life in exploitation mode, then your company will soon run out of resources, right? Yeah. So there's a limit to the evolutionary approach. I think it's a great starting point. In my initial 97 article, Dynamic Capabilities and Strategic Management, did put a fair amount of emphasis on path dependency and evolutionary paths. But dynamic capabilities is really about evolution with design. And the design comes from the role of the manager. And this is one of the hard things that we have to do is to, how do you graft a world in which managers can design onto a evolutionary economics framework where there's a lot of path dependency? And the answer is, I think you can. It's not as neat and tidy as you would like. Some scholars, Sidney Winter and others, have, have really built the edifice of evolutionary economics around routines and mm -hmm. that routines are the genes of organizations and push that analogy. And I think it's very useful to do that. And I think ordinary capabilities are like the genes of an organization, but dynamic capabilities live with a top management team. And yes, some part of discovery is routine, but most of it's not. Did Amazon get into cloud computing through a routine? No. Discover they had a lot of capability to meet peak demand. It was a very Penroseian thing, actually. Maybe I can do something else with all of this excess capacity that I have. Um, if you take Intel, yes, innovation there became routinized as you went for narrow and uh, line width. But that's not the norm. That's the only company that I can think of which really had a predictable path of innovation. Most paths of innovations are unpredictable. Incremental innovation is predictable. The industrial world is predictable. That where ordinary capabilities lie. Incremental change is just tweaking everything and getting to so-called best practice or pushing the frontiers of best practice, but, but radical change and breaking into new markets, creating new markets. I don't think there's a routine to that. I've actually, you know, ran across an interview of Elon Musk recently, and he said, I've really got to think from first principles that everything he has to think new about every standard. How do you get to Mars? Is there a routine? No, but and let's go back to first principles. First principles are your guide, which is really the abductive reasoning thing. I've got to think, come up with a hypothesis, and then test that hypothesis with my colleagues. I don't want to have to test it too much in real life. I don't want to have to test too many rockets. So test as much as I can, model as much as I can. But at the end of the day, there is a component that depends on the entrepreneurial capabilities of the management team. And that can't be distilled down to a routine. So the biological metaphor is a good one to have in mind, but don't take it too seriously. Don't take it all the way. That's my advice. But aren't we trying to routinize the non-routinizable? I mean, this is what business education is all about, at least good quality business education. And we're trying to figure out what the secret sauce is. We're trying to figure out what makes Amazon so capable, what makes Apple so capable. And we want to write you write books about it and package it and come up with some to-dos. And I certainly take students around to visit a lot of these companies. And places like Amazon, they're not shy about sharing 
what they think of as the secret sauce about their 14 principles and day one and one-way doors and PRFAQs. And it's almost like these companies aren't holding their secrets close to the chest. They're letting everybody know what you need to do in order to have dynamic capabilities. But a lot of that is about how they're scaling their business. That would fit into maybe the ordinary capabilities. And I do recognize that they're what I call signature ordinary capabilities. But but even if Jeff Bezos sits down and tells you everything, I'm not sure you're going to be able to replicate it. Richard Ramon has this concept of uncertain imitability. Yes, there's certain things we can look at with respect to Amazon and say that's really why they're great. But we're not going to get it all right. And moreover, if you try and transport it to a different circumstance, you're going to have to modify it to some degree anyway. However, that said, I will accept that we're trying to understand this. But it's not something you can, uh, this is a quote from Tim Cook, you can't write a check for it. And whenever you can't write a check, if I want to improve my dynamic capabilities, there's no place I can go where I can write a check for a billion dollars and suddenly I've got dynamic capabilities. I got to do all these little things. It's very homegrown and it's something that you have to build. And that's the reason why it's a point of differentiation. Because you can't write a check for it, you can build competitive advantage. Anytime you can write a check for something, then everybody in the industry can have it. And there's levels of playing field, so to speak. So this is an insight that I think comes from the resource-based theory of the firm as much as it comes from dynamic capabilities. If you can write a check for it, Like best practice, a lot of people think, oh, gee, you know, when I get to best practice, that's a holy grail. No, because other people have best practices, too. And then you're in vigorous competition and rivalry, and you're eking out a competitive return. To do better than a competitive return, you got to have something that's beyond best practice. What's beyond best practice is dynamic capabilities. To continue with the the biology metaphor, is our concern with firms... Are we thinking about the right unit of analysis here? Firms are always trying to perpetuate their existence and stay alive for as long as possible. Why should we care if the resources that they're currently using can be released for some other purpose and sucked up in a more useful place? Why shouldn't we focus not on maximizing the lifespan and longevity of firms, but rather maximize the returns to the investors in those firms? So let's take the notion of disruption, which is really a Schumpeterian notion that there is a certain amount of necessary disruption, but there's unnecessary disruption. If the management team doesn't repurpose so that the thing has to be broken up, there's not just a loss in shareholder value, but there's disruptions to people's lives. Now, in some cases, maybe something better happens, but in general, if you're a good firm, you're a steward, you keep that organization constantly changing, and it's less traumatic. We want change, but why have traumatic change if you can do it with less trauma? It's always less friction, less costly to society. I think earlier we were talking about how your theory of dynamic capabilities has applicability outside of the firm anyway. It can be applied to nonprofit organizations, it can be applied to governments, and even at the level of the, the individual. And I, I like to tell my MBA students that they should think about strategy with respect to their career, with respect to their respect to their lives. As educators, you teach at Haas, you have a graduate class for MBAs. You're teaching them not only to become more innovative managers, but, but I think you're also trying to teach them something about how they can develop and cultivate 
dynamic capabilities individually. What should people be thinking about, especially in today's world where things are changing so rapidly? How can individuals cultivate dynamic capabilities? Some part of it is inherent to your character, but dynamic capabilities in an individual requires you to be very observant, to figure out, to be very curious. If you're not curious, you're not going to have dynamic capabilities. You've got to be able to observe and then make sense of things. And you've got to and then do. There's a lot of people, particularly in the academic world, have great ideas, but just can't implement anything. But a manager has to not just have a great idea, they've also got to be a decision maker and an implementer. Getting people to to be able to segue back and forth from the intellectual side to the action side, that's an important trait for a manager. And also, you can't be too intimidated. You, you've got to have confidence and you've got to feel it's okay to fail. This is where the culture matters. If it's not okay to fail, you won't get dynamic capabilities. This is a problem that Japan has. Japan really perfected the industrial model and best practices. But when it comes to radical innovation, that's not what they're good at. You look at Europe and you look at Japan, none of them have got any big tech firms worth speaking of. And I think it's because they're not bold enough and they're not willing to make the investments that are necessary and take the risks that are required to create new industries. And there's a personality trait here, which is around bold decision-making. If you look at an Elon Musk, and he's a very bold. Also, it's not about profitability per se. It's about some purpose, some broader mission. Steve Jobs was not thinking about becoming a billionaire. He was thinking about doing stuff that was cool and making products and using computers and putting computers in the hands of people so they could use them, being very passionate about it. Now, profits will come along if you do that well, but it's not the first motivation. A lot of people misunderstand that. If it is your first motivation, you will never get there. I think our colleague, Paul Tiffany, once said, if you want to learn how to run a 19th century railroad, you should, uh, you should get an MBA. <laughs> is, that, is that still true? It is true. The, the Wharton School began essentially because of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and we couldn't manage logistics, and trains were crashing. We couldn't keep them on time. So, yes, business education began because we had big businesses that needed to be managed, and the first big businesses were the railroads. I, I think that the business schools are better than that today. But at the same time, we have to realize that the stuff that's easy to teach is the ordinary capabilities. The stuff that's hard to teach is things related to dynamic capabilities. It requires you to be incredibly interdisciplinary. It requires a different style of decision-making. It requires discovery. It requires learning. It requires things. There are elements of that in an MBA program, but I don't think any school really hoist that to to the top in a way that, that they should. And that's perhaps because faculty are too much in their own silos of knowledge. I sometimes joke, we do a great job of teaching the individual disciplines in business schools. And these are foundational pillars that, you know, are very helpful in business. And then we essentially throw the student out the door. And, you know, if they say, how does all this work together? And the answer is you go figure it out yourself. We've given you the tools. It's your job to integrate that knowledge. I think Dynamic Capabilities does a good job of actually creating an organizing framework. And if you used to think of the field of strategy as providing, quote, the capstone course, but the field of strategy is now 
disappeared as one of the silos become a silo itself and academics tend to do this because we we want to be able to measure people for promotional purposes so what happens is we try and put some boundaries around a field in, in order to manage the academic promotion system yeah i'm willing to forgive that up to tenure but once you get tenure i think it's on the burden is on the institution as well as on the individual faculty member to be interdisciplinary and to take on the big fundamental questions. There's too much work done on very narrow questions that are not particularly, well, we've got limited utility. We owe society better answers to the fundamental questions and we owe, you know, managers better answers and better guidance on the issues that they have to deal with. Well, David, this is like hanging out in the uh, faculty lounge back in the day. Yes, the faculty lounge is today is uh, mainly an online lounge, and you're right. We don't have enough conversations like this, and I'm delighted that you're brokering some of them. But we do need more of these conversations, and interdisciplinary orientation, I think, allows that. Well, thanks, David. Appreciate you coming in today. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.